2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only podcast history, The Devil. I'm Klaus Yoder, and with me today to talk about Goethe's Faust Part 2 is Travis Stevens. So yeah, Travis, thanks for coming on to agreeing to talk about this gargantuan play. We were just, we were just chatting about the, the uh, sort of lack of balance between the two Fausts, Faust 1 and Faust 2. Faust, Faust 2 is very long, and I spent about a month watching and reading it the actual recording is about eight hours long i was happy as the person with some german to undertake the 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 heavy the heavy burden the burden of love the work of love of watching and reading faust 2 but i was able to share some some key excerpts with you and i hope it was enjoyable. Just to sort of set it up a little bit, this work published 1832, which it occupied the last years of his life writing it, but he was writing a lot of it the same time he was writing the first part. So when you look at the two plays, you're like, oh, these are so weirdly different. And I'll get into the differences a little bit. To speak about it generally, though, Faust II is way more like macro. It's a longer it deals with like society and history and culture in this big picture way whereas faust 1 is very psychological some would say anthropological but like more chamber drama focused a lot about the sort of inner feelings you know lots of feelings you know and you're like these are very different but the weirdest thing is you could be like oh he was writing the one in the middle of his life or even he was writing about Faust a lot of his life, but he once earlier, once later, and the, the 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 older Goethe wrote differently. But he was sketching out scenes for the second one at the same time he was writing the first one. So the weirdness is not just like the eccentricities of age; it's like sort of deliberate. And I thought that was I was reassured by that. I guess on some level that it all had a purpose because the second part is allegorical it's got a lot of like interludes heavy symbolism it feels a lot more diffuse whereas the first part is like really lean and more like the christopher marlowe like that we did a few it's there's huge differences but like it's it's sort of more on that spectrum whereas it's like this feels like a different beast and i had friends who who know goethe or just like just don't even bother with it it's, it's like not even worth getting into uh but i i I'm stubborn and and I wanted I wanted a project I guess and I, I, I like I like the Faust stories and I just wanted to keep going with it so yeah uh, I so yeah I hope it was I hope the, what I did share with you was was enjoyable what, what did you think of it just from what you saw yes well I saw very limited excerpts uh, thank you for curating them that was amazing the best part of watching it was this moment where Carrie turns to me as I'm watching and I'm like laughing at one of the jokes he turns to me as I'm watching because there are no subtitles on. And he's like, You're, you understand that? 
and I laughed even harder because, of course, I had a transcript right in front of me on my laptop that he couldn't see. Um, but I was very briefly tempted to brag about my German <laughs> prowess from uh, German for reading at Santa Monica College. Or no, I think I took German one at Santa Monica College in the early 2000s. And then I took German for reading at HDS. And um, no, that did not get me far enough to be able to understand Faust 2 just yeah. by listening. Yeah. I think I got one out of every 10 to 20 words, something like that. So uh, yeah, not a Germanist here, but really enjoyed, really did enjoy the scenes that you shared, particularly since I could understand what they were saying by reading the transcript. Um, and in one of the videos, there was there were subtitles available, which was pretty great. Yeah. Uh, German, but like that helps me a lot more. I can yeah. <laughs> again German for reading uh, helped a certain amount. Yeah, yeah. And I watched it, but I had the play open the entire time, so like I could I was just like I was reading and flipping back and forth through the whole thing. And my method was to like I would watch just a half hour at a time. I would just like watch a half hour every day or so you know, give or take and, and get through it that way because it's just, it does feel just sort of overwhelming. And even more so than Faust one, I kind of let a lot of this wash over me. I like, I like a lot of it is so gestural and diffuse and, and sort of less super plot driven that I was kind of just like, I'm chilling. A lot of it's very lyrical. You know, I was not looking up every word I did not know that I came across uh, watching. I just enjoyed it. I mean, I just, I just kind of like, I just vibed with it, you know, and I just, <laughs> it was, it was, it was cool. So yeah, it's like more a story of historical, social, cultural development, as much as personal development, they do intertwine a lot. So if you're saying that, especially when we talk about not just the sort of big picture, you know, social, societal, cultural development, but we're also talking about how that's embodied in the story of the character of Faust, then what what can we say about Mephistopheles, um, the sort of, in this particular production, who steals the show, more or less, how does he develop or change throughout these, you know, throughout the storyline, throughout this play? Yeah, totally. Yeah, and if... Faust 2 is a story of how Faust gets saved to do sort of an early spoiler. There has to be some wow, change. Wow. There, yeah, Faust. there has to be some some character development. It, it kind of is a big spoiler because all the Faust we've seen so far, he gets devoured and beaten up by demons. So giving it a happy ending. Yeah, Goethe does give it a happy ending. But if Faust's character development has to take place to sort of allow for this kind of salvation at the end like his relationship with Mephistopheles is like really tight and you could expect to see some changes with a devil too and and a lot of changes there's a lot of constancy so like some of the scenes like the, th the scene that I bet you were laughing at when he's sort of in his trickster jokester form he has sent Faust to like the underworld, the Chthonic regions where the mothers, capital M, the mothers of chaos and prehistory dwell to rescue Helen, to sort of bring Helen of Troy back, which connects to the older Faust materials. That's something cool about this is like he gets into some of the materials I was talking about like months ago from like the 16th century Faust and like sort of elaborates them for his own purposes. But 
he you know he's still like pulling pranks and like just messing with people there was a scene where he is like asked to give a a love cure for for one of the one of the one of the young ladies uh, and you had a great observation about this oh yeah 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 so the cure for it is that is totally crazy right he says that she needs to take this charcoal and she's supposed to um do a few things with it she's supposed to mark her her beloved either on his um on his cloak, on his clothing, and and that's gonna make him feel bad for having abandoned her. And then after that, she's supposed to ingest the charcoal. And this is not activated charcoal, which might be in your toothpaste if you're like, <laughs> you know, a hippie. Yeah. But it's it's this is not good news. And so of course she says, "Is this not um, ooh favorite German word gift? Um, yeah, yeah. Poisonous." Um, and then Mephistopheles is like, "Hey girl, it's it's fine." Um, you're going to have to travel far to find this. It's very special charcoal. Uh, <laughs> he, he gets it from a funeral pyre. It's like really great. Really great recommendation. Yeah. yeah. And in this production, when he takes his charcoal and he's presenting it to her, he marks her forehead. He tries very hard. It like doesn't rub off like yeah. he wants it to. Yeah. But he tries to mark a cross on her forehead as if it's Ash Wednesday. Which is great because, of course, last Wednesday was it just was that we yeah were yeah. There, there's other crossovers with the uh, with the with the lectionary this for this episode too that we'll we'll get into for 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 Lent the start of Lent which is cool, but yeah he and that seems also funny because he's not only giving like these crazy bogus cures to these people he's being mobbed and like it's almost as if like it's like he's one of the beat he's like the fifth beetle. Mephistopheles he's being like chased and he's just like I need Faust to come back right now this really sucks I hate these people like get them away from me I was just going to say it didn't really strike me until now you're describing the scene that it reminds me it's a weird parallel to Jesus and the mobs that follow him Mm. who are seeking cures right um and his ministry yeah a little bit of an inverse here but it's comic and it's um it's ridiculous and it's funny right and part of the comedy too is that Mephistopheles has been has begun this act? This is Act One of Faust Two, as like impersonating the court jester for the for the emperor of like what seems to be the Holy Roman Empire, the sort of the German Roman Empire, or whatever. And he, during the course of being like the court jester, he also helps introduce uh, paper currency based on speculating on the on the value of mineral wealth underneath German soil at the time. <laughs> so he's like doing all of these like strange like feats of state and political economy for for the for the Holy Roman Empire. But he's sort of trapped without Faust and he's entertaining this retinue of like of like the uh, the royal court and he's just like sort of overwhelmed. So yeah, he stays, so like you see a lot of like the, the sense of humor is there throughout and the sort of the lustiness and, and the kind of earthiness and everything. But like there are moments where they travel into like the zone of like ancient Greek culture and mythology for complicated reasons. Again, sort of trying to recover a rescue or find Helen of Troy, who is appeared earlier in Faust one as like the instantiation of the female ideal form for Faust. So like he sees, he first glimpses this form in the witch's kitchen and then he gets the potion that makes him look younger and kind of just like sex crazy. 
And so then he goes for Gre- Gretchen's like the first pretty face he sees. And then he, and he like, he's like, he goes for that. And, and he sort of, it's like, it's not exactly the, the sort of the total ideal, you know, Helena Troy is the total ideal. So he's still striving for this, hel- this female ideal. That's like the sort of the most highest object of his sort of aesthetic and erotic desire. And so they go into like this, what's called like the classical Valpurgisnacht, which there was a, there was, there was a Valpurgisnacht in Faust one with all these like druids and witches and sort of demons in like kind of the Northern European Christian imagination or Christian pagan imagination. But then they're in classical Greece and he is not really on shore footing. He, that is Mephistopheles. He's like trying to seduce these Greek witches and they're like, they're like farting in his face, you know, as they're like, tr- they're trying to like, they're like showing him, they're showing him their bodies and then he gets closer and they just play tricks on him. And he's just like totally flabbergasted. And one of the funny things about that is it kind of provincializes the devil to say like this, de- you, you look at the devil and you're like, well, okay, this is a kind of universal cosmological story. And this moment, it makes it seem like, no, the devil is just like some spirit or th- cultural artifact of northern europe who like doesn't have terrifying powers throughout the world uh so i thought that was a i thought that was a cool idea i don't know, like what like what is what do you make of this because we've seen this before where people like christian theologians took greek gods and characters and made them into demons you know we saw it from the patristic sources to milton to dante and stuff like what did you think about the kind of reverse of that here it's kind of a, a funny trick he does yeah it's it's like these two worlds don't quite line up, yeah, which was yeah. a, a fun and really different take. I would say, uh, as you mentioned Dante, Dante does something slightly different, right? Where you have characters from Greek mythology that show up and they it's true that they get sort of superseded by a Christian hierarchical afterlife. Um, and they are demons, but they have like very particular roles that ultimately serve kind of the justice and love of God that structure all of hell. Quote unquote. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> the love, the love. It's like, Ooh, that's hard to see, but that is what he claims it is. Um, so very close to the other approaches to be sure. It's just a slight variation. Um, but here we have that real refusal and in a way that's, um, there are lots of ways one could depict that, um, kind of two worlds colliding that don't that don't align and the way that he chooses to do it is through impotence right which is mm. part of the joke that reappears around the character of Mephistopheles his power is limited in these ways and we're invited to sometimes make that into a joke for sure and I think what was also interesting about the the move of Christians to incorporate the Greek pantheon into their demonology was to say like, oh yeah, they really were powerful. Like they, they did have powers because they were demons. Like their power is, is like on a lower level, but it still was power. And here we're seeing like, he's like, he's at his wits ends and doesn't have a lot of power in the neighborhood of these Greek, these Greek uh, mythological characters. So his, he, what's funny is not only does he, he eventually like learns to cope with this, by teaming up with other sort of scary demonic characters in in the classical Walpurgisnacht. And so he comes upon in what you see in English is like the Grey Sisters or the uh the Four Cities or Four Kaides. I'm not really sure again, Greek pronunciation, haha. But they like they're so if you would know if they're most familiar to people from the story of 
Perseus and Medusa and Andromeda because he extracts or extorts the information about where to find Medusa from the Grey Sisters by taking their one eye because they only have one eye. This is these three sisters who are like really old and kind of ancient and sort of say cryptic things. I always kind of connect them with the witches from Macbeth that, that you sort of see at the beginning, you know. But they have like a tooth, they have an eye, and Perseus grabs the eye and that's how he is able to extort the information out of him. Well, Mephistopheles is like, well, I have two eyes. Like I can, you know, I'm like, if you come, like, let me hang out with you and join your number. Like I can add something to your project and they welcome him in. And so for the rest of the scenes that take place in like the ancient Greek land, and it really does feel like a super Mario brothers level where it's like now, like now, <laughs> now Goethe and Fauster and like Mario brothers, Greek land, you know, and, and it has that sort of feel. And I've seen some commentators say like, that's, that's Goethe. Goethe's treatment of, of the Greeks characters and sequences and motifs are in reaction to the sort of mania for the Hellenistic in German culture at the time. It was a way of like saying like, Oh, like, yeah, this stuff is an inspiration for all of us, but like it has its limits. And eventually Helena Troy goes to the underworld and it's like, he kind of qualifies it, but yeah. So Mephistopheles, finds his way to make a difference in this world, but it means giving up his identity. He has to appear as one of the Grey Sisters for like the rest of it. They kind of all collapse into one person. So, so yeah. cool. That's, it just sounds incredible. Yeah, you, you seem like that, that was, that was an, you seemed enthused about this idea of like the sort of subsumption of, of Mephistopheles into the rest of the Grey Sisters. I just think we need more. First of all, I love like messing with the Greek myth. I think that's really fun that he feels so free to interrupt it and um, isn't isn't bound by the inherently classical tradition to not improvise a little bit and mix it up literally. Um, but secondly, I just feel we need more plays where people have multiple characters that combine into one. Oh, Steven Universe, a la Steven Universe that happens there. There are two, oh. there are two, lovers who sort of combine to one become one super character and you don't know that the super uh, character is a combined character until like halfway through so spoiler spoiler alert too late there you go yes 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 yeah and once mephistopheles does this and becomes like gender ambiguous like just like it's subsumed into the gray sisters this is where he's actually able they're able to make a difference because the next part of the story this is act three playing fast and loose with the acts. Yeah, pretty sure act three. The acts are all very long. Anyway, what? so Faust goes into Greek world, Greek Super Mario Brothers world, looking for <laughs> Helena Troy. Ends up, like, in medieval world, like, as a ruler and, like, running, a, like, a kingdom or whatever. It's, it's, it's a little vague, purposefully vague. But we have to get to Helen, and it's actually... Mephisto as Grey Sister who leads Helen to Faust. Like he sort of helps facilitate this 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 uh this pairing. And the story of how he does this is pretty striking. So in this in the play, he intercepts Helen when she is on her way back to Sparta with her retinue. And this and Goethe uses uh her retinue, her sort of court of 
Trojan women as a Greek chorus. So they all sing in unison like a Greek chorus would and sort of provide like it's sort of it's sort of narrative and it's commentary on what's going on. And she gets there, she gets back to Sparta before Menelaus, who's the king of Sparta. And in, you know, the the epics, like, of course, the Trojan War is fought because Helen of Troy goes to, to Troy and leaves Menelaus in the lurch. And so she gets back and, like, things seem a little off, a little weird. And she has, like, this foreboding. And then, like, Mephisto as Forkidis appears and is like, you don't want to stay here because your husband's going to, your husband's going to sacrifice you alive. Like, you, th- you think, you thought this whole problem was going to go away when you came home? Like, no, he's in the next ship back and they're going to cut your head off. Like, all of you, you're all going to die. And he, and so eventually they're, they're totally freaked out. And there's a lot of interesting banter and insult, like sort of like diswar, like sort of disrap warfare between the chorus of Trojan women and Mephisto as Grey Sister. But eventually Helen's like, let's let's go let's follow let's we, we, we just got to get out of here and that's like that's how mephisto is able to like put a stamp on the action of the classical world whereas like before it was just like sort of bumbling around and fucking up but like yeah in in the guise of like a gray witch uh, is able to is able to make it happen why did helen go ahead and go to troy let me tell you it's like he's fixing the myth it's really great yeah, well, I, I think it's great because it's like, well, what happened when she? What happened when the Greeks won? You know, <laughs> yeah. What happened afterwards? Basically, after Helen and Faust get together. There's so much I can't get into because there's like obviously it's like an eight hour long play and like it's just there there, there are things I have to bracket. The, the the happy ending of Faust two does not happen with Faust and Helen. I'll just leave it at that. There are some great disappointments. They have a child. Their child dies, and she goes down into the underworld with their child, and he's devastated, and gets whisked away, and he finds himself on keeps finding himself at the peaks of mountains, like sort of musing philosophically about things. And I guess, I guess it's a German player. Yeah. I don't know. That's how it goes. But, um, but basically Mephistopheles is like there to help him with the next stage of his journey. Like he like pursued the feminine ideal and like had like some satisfaction there, but it was not like a permanent satisfaction and his next project is like he wants to engage in like social and political life and this is like we might jump down a little bit because this is the part where we sort of get the reenactment of the temptation in the wilderness so they so this is like so the next shift in Mephistopheles' character is to be the person who's going to help Faust succeed in, like, making an impact in the world. Faust is like, okay, like, I'm past this kind of romantic quest for aesthetic, erotic pleasure. Like, what would be actually really satisfying would be to, like, make 
the world better for like my fellow human beings and like be acclaimed as like a great man of history sort of monumentalized but to also but like just not to be you know not for it to be totally empty but like for it to be like oh like he did something and so they have this sequence where they're they're literally the top of a mountain and the text of the play makes clear that we're like we should be looking at matthew 4 which was just this past week's readings in the lectionary for for Lent. And we've talked about the temptation in the wilderness a bunch of times. I think the last time we did was Devil's Advocate because they have oh, they, yeah. they they do they do a redux of temptation in the wilderness from the top of a, a Manhattan skyscraper. But yeah, uh, what did you think about this? What was it like what was it like reading a new version of the temptation in the wilderness uh, this time, Travis? Yeah, um, well, you know, I, I love a good temptation, um, love a good wilderness scene. Uh, shout out to my parents who are in Big Bend National Park in Texas at the moment in the being, wilderness. Being own, tempted continuously, yeah. How Lenten could they be? Uh, very, very good um, on their part. Um, so I had a few thoughts. One is that this reminds me, so the origin of the mountains as described here reminded me of... Um, Oh, and what is the origin of the mountains? So when uh, Lucifer and his retinue were thrown into hell, um, it was not a great atmosphere. And here, <laughs> literally, I mean the gases around them, sulfurous gases, were noxious to these heavenly beings who had coughing fits, which is totally... Uh, um, fortuitous because I, I felt great because I've been coughing for the past two weeks. So this is awesome to me that I, I'm in good company with these uh, demons. So they're coughing so hard that the, um, the force of their coughs breaks through the earth's crust, breaks it up and creates mountains, um, which is kind of amazing. Am I getting that close to right? Yeah, Close? totally. Okay. Yeah, totally. So then totally. This reminded me a little bit, again, of Dante, whom I just can't stop thinking about, apparently. Um, with, who, you may remember that Lucifer's descent, his being thrown out of heaven into hell, creates this deep valley um, and the structure of hell itself, um, his being thrown down and breaking through the earth into this uh, pit, basically. Um, but then on the reverse side of that, uh, that pushes up the mountain of purgatory. I don't remember. Do you have to imagine... Yes. So um, we have similar sort of mountain creation stories related to uh, demons being thrown into and creating hell. So that was kind of a cool moment. Um, but always reminds me of the my next association, which I get to just free associate today, which is great, uh, which is the Kantian sublime. This mm, idea that yeah. great philosophical conversations happen when you are confronted with nature is the sort of... Um, most appropriate example that he provides across his work when he talks about the sublime. So mountains are included in particular. And then of course, yes, the Lenten association that you've mentioned, this is clearly the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. What I did not remember is that um, there are two different orders in which this role. So it appears, the story appears in Mark, Matthew, and Luke, um, and all the synoptics. And um, with, of course, as you would expect, fuller treatments, slightly fuller treatments in Matthew and Luke because Mark is so to the point and short and is the source material for the other two, among other things. Um, but the order of the miracles changes slightly. Um, so yeah. I'm wondering, I, I think 
seeing the kingdoms of the world all together feels really final and like it should be the the ultimate temptation of power and ruling over the entire world. Whereas throwing yourself down from the Temple Mount feels like a warm up to that. And so I'm on board with Matthew's order. In Luke, those two miracles are reversed. Everyone starts with turning um, the stones into bread. So yes, yes. those are my thoughts on um, this mountaintop philosophic, philosophical yeah. reflection. Yeah. And I think all those play out. Like, I think the sublime, I think Faust is is supposed to be a little bit more like your philosopher, the sublime, because they start out and they're on this mountaintop and Lucifer Mephistopheles rather is like, Oh, like this looks familiar to me. And Faust's like, what are you talking about? And it's like, well, it looks just like this down in the depths of hell. And he talks and he tells the story of what you said, where they sort of sneeze their way out of hell and create these mountains. And there's this great point from, from Mephisto where he's like, this is the devilish art par excellence to take the lowest and make it the highest. You know, like it used to be the bottom of hell and now we're standing on it at the top of the world looking down. And Faust is basically like, you're full of shit. Like you're always telling me all this stuff. Like you don't know what you're talking about, like et cetera, et cetera. And he sort of subscribes for like, to a more like, like rationalist philosophical like oh like nature's so beautiful because it's like it's like all these systems working together in in sort of chance and but also you know but it's like both randomness and a system systemic and and it's it's not interesting to me because it has all these demonic stories that you're making up it's interesting to me because it's like silent like it seems separate from from human beings and anthropomorphic stuff and mephisto's rejoinder is like well you you scientists are just like always just just full of it. You think I'm full of it. You guys are full of it. And like the common people know that this is how demons got from being underground to being free to, to move about in the air. Like the common people know this via Luther's translation of the Bible into German, I guess, or whatever. Because the common people didn't always know this. But like he, he's saying like it's funny to me that Mephisto aligns himself with like kind of a more popular like vernacular like sort of sensibility whereas faust is like this elite sort of snobby like no like it's none of that that your folklore has nothing to do with this and so on and so forth and i I sort of like that how mephisto is like like my story seems less rational but like is shared by more people and is more interesting and and meaningful than yours i'm curious about this idea of oh the stuff that was at the bottom is now on top and that's that's demonic par excellence because to me the first thing i think of is the kingdom of god and that reversals are first and foremost sort of christological and um so that's an interesting sort of reclaiming when the debate that they're having is actually about nature and whether this you know 19th century nature concept of nature can uh romantic are we pre-romantic though we're, we're romantic. We're almost post. We're really post romantic. Oh, Klaus sorry. Too. I knew. I mean, yeah. I obviously knew that. Yeah. So I'm just testing you. Great job, <laughs> Klaus. Um, and so this concept of nature is the is the other um, pull. Is it demonic or is it nature? Um, is interesting that we don't uh, bring up. Oh, is this just God? Um, and of course, but but I really think he's probably drawing on Drake here. Started from the bottom. Now we're here. <laughs> this, um, that's probably what's going on. Yeah, then that's definitely what's going on. And I think it, it kind of you, is that attitude. It kind of is the attitude of like, oh, like we were we were in trouble and now like we get to fly all around and make all this mischief and nice try, God. Ha ha ha. 
What so. did you make of the of the folk knowledge of his lifting up of sort of comment and saying, "Oh no, this this." Refusing the sort of elite interpretation around nature and saying the, the truth here, the people who really understand demons and um, the truth and the truth, those are common people. Why is that the case? Do you, did you read any links there to, I don't know, um, buried cultural knowledge from pre-Christian Europe or what did you make of that? I think it's both. Yeah, I think that's there. I think that that sort of, that that sort of folkloric aspect of like a pre-Christian time is there and it's ironic that it's being delivered via like like with in the actual text of the play there will be like Ephesians 6 you know like it's like sort of both and so there's an irony there and I think your point about how irony the reversal is usually Christological is not lost on Goethe and I think he's actively subverting that there's there's a lot of like post-Christianity going on in this play where a lot of the sort of tropes and elements of Christian theology and mythology are deployed. But like in the beginning of the play, we have God, the father or the Lord talking with Mephisto by the end of the play, the Lord is nowhere present. We have the Virgin Mary and like female saints. We do not have the Lord in any like sort of way, in any kind of patriarchal heavenly, you know, court setting. So yeah, there's a lot of undercutting and like a lot of this does come through discussions of nature and bringing a kind of enlightenment, post-enlightenment framework to thinking about creation. And at the same time, you have like the, a devil who is coming out of this sort of Christian, Christian literary tradition working in this environment. And so there's, there's a lot of sort of different scales of complexity at work. The other thing that this does is we, so we get the like, you know, the reversal of the bottom to the top. And it's from that top that, as you were saying, with the, the temptation of the wilderness, they can look down. And that's how Faust understands his next, his next striving. Like Faust is always striving. The, the, the sort of conceit of the whole thing is that anything that Mephistopheles supplies to Faust will never actually satisfy him. But he keeps using Mephistopheles to get him what he wants in his striving for Helen or Gretchen or power. And in this case, this temptation is both, it's a, it's a framework of temptation and, and salvation because he looks down from the mountain. He's like, oh, I want to like do something that matters to people and make this world better. And Faust is like, I'm going to get you. Let's go look down at the cities. <laughs> I would, I'd be, I'd be like, you know, getting all the women in the court. And I'd be, you know, I would be like, you know, like, like doing PR campaigns and like, yeah, we can make this human civilization thing work for my agenda. And Faust is like, you don't even know what people really want. Like, that's what you think. That's what you're an idiot. That's what you think people want. But like, I want something more than all of that. Like, I've already done the erotic thing. Like I'm moving past, I'm trying to do something else now. So yeah. Uh, so we have the, the mountaintop as like in the, in the temptation of the wilderness or the top of the, the temple or like the mountaintop is where he sees the cities in, in the gospels. And he's seeing the cities and in the gospels, like, oh, you could bow down to the devil and get that control of that. And Faust is like, I do want control over that, but you work for me. You're working for me. I'm not bowing down to you. We have a deal. <laughs> like, and, and so there's, again, like le- levels of rewriting and subverting the, the, the sort of evangelical presentation of this kind of thing. So what are we, from someone who's actually read and watched this play, 
Um, I was curious about this, this moment that you brought up where um, he's taunting Mephistopheles saying, what do you know about what humans really want? You, yeah. you really fundamentally don't get it if all you can do is provide sort of sensual delights. Um, there's something, I want something grander than that, uh, bigger than that. Um, and I guess we, we're eventually going to learn more details around the kind of society that he wants to create, um, a free working society of some kind. Um, you've mentioned that he wants to be memorial memorialized. So there's a desire for fame that's part of that, right? It is, um, But yeah, there's, it is. Also, there's also this desire to create something new that benefits other people. Um, and so if we had to sort of read this along uh, moralizing lines, we might say that he has mixed motives here. For sure. But oh, yeah. I, I guess what I'm wondering is by introducing this kind of desire into the protagonist, are we meant to sort of step back and say, wow, each time Mephistopheles um, doesn't really doesn't get human desire because he keeps trying to take the lens of what's the bad? What, what, I, I want to see whether your desire is good or bad. I want to test it and I want to pull you toward the bad. Um, is, is he misapprehending what it means to be a human being fundamentally, which is to desire things that are both good and bad, that, are, yeah. that refuse these kind of Christian moralizing lenses? Yeah, I think that is the key. And I was just thinking about this before we started talking. Right, so it, it's a connection to Faust's charge. You don't know what people want. And this is also, so like there's a bet between Faust and Mephistopheles that Faust will never be satisfied with what Mephistopheles gives him or provides him. There's also a bet that comes before that in a Job-esque prologue in heaven that happens at the beginning of Faust 1 where the Lord is like, okay, yeah, like go at him. Like you're not going to win. Like he does the sort of same thing with, with Job. It's like, oh, have you seen my servant? <laughs> you know, <laughs> Johannes Faust. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> and, um, and, but what God says is interesting. God's like, yeah, like you're going to, he's going to make mistakes because the human being in its embodied earthly form in its striving is always going to make mistakes. Like it's always like, it's, and that's what you're saying. I think about like mixed motives. Like we're like in a kind of sort of really like harsh and, I'm looking for the right words, but like a very dualistic or black and white Christian ethical consideration, like the good and the bad are at odds with each other. And there's no, like there shouldn't be ambiguity, but like what this play shows is like, it's all ambiguity. Like it's all ambiguity. And, and I think, yeah, that's totally part of the point of what we see because even God's like, Oh yeah. Like he's going to try he's going to keep making mistakes even as he's striving for great things and, and for, for noble things. And, he's going to get dirty. Like it's just, it's unavoidable. And yeah, I think that's exactly what, I think you're right. I think that's exactly what's playing out in Faust's confidence that Mephistopheles like is not going to be able to ensnare him. His sort of stubborn insistence that like, no, like you don't actually, you're never going to be able to satisfy me. So, yeah, Which that, points to some like really interesting ontological uh, theses that are lurking here about what it means to be angelic versus human. Um, but I don't need to go further into them. I'm just, I wanted to, to signal them. Yes. And it's interesting. Like people say that 
the Faust of this play or the, the Mephistopheles of this play is like not really the devil. He's like more of a nature spirit, which like I sort of he's like an elemental daimon in like the sort of more original Greek sense. And like we see that there is a relativization of the kind of moral cosmology of Christianity in like especially the Greek stuff. At the same time, we get to the end of the play and Mephisto sort of slides into a pre-traditional devil role pretty easily. So I think it's a little bit, it's, I don't find it totally satisfying to see like, oh yeah, like it's, we start with the devil, but we subvert the devil. I mean, there's subversion all the way down, I suppose, but like he still, it's not as if you get to the end of this play and Mephisto isn't doing devil things. It's called, it's certainly called into question the universality of those devil things and those Christian things. Like they don't, they don't add up or make sense in different contexts, but in the context, they go back to the Holy Roman empire. They go back to like modernish Germany, Renaissance Germany by the end of this play. And so they're back in, they're back on Mephisto's home field. And so he's going to do his devil things. And so we, we, we do get some more familiar, we get the temptation on the wilderness here. Like we're getting, you know, sort of devil things going on. So I, I don't think it's totally just a, subversion of the devil as such in this talk about the society that faust is sort of planning here so maybe we can do that for a second but that that is intimately connected with the failure of mephisto to get his soul because yeah because like the bet is that as we keep saying 
the bet what Faust promises is he's like, oh, if I ever say like, oh, this is so great, like maybe let's just keep doing this. That's the moment in which you can take my soul and take me right to hell. And Faust's vision for gaining fame and making a difference is in this kind of utopian community he has purchased through using his sorcery on behalf of the emperor. And it's really funny. So good. It's so cool. So good. He, he's like, oh, I want like this, this beach area, and then I'm going to push the ocean back. And the ocean is what he sees from the mountain, too. He sees human civilization, and he sees the water, and he's like, I want to discipline nature. I want to, I want to like, take the next step and make this work for us and push the chaos of the water back. It's very Yahweh in Genesis, right? Yeah. Kind of stuff happening. But, but also, yeah, um, the Job vibes as well. Exactly. Yahweh as, as, yeah. as yeah. master of the sea and the yeah. sea and the sea monsters and, and whatnot that he's looking for. So there's some pride. There's a pride element going on here. But right? of course, it's he's Yahweh, but he's using the devil to do it for him. Like he, he can't do it without Mephistopheles. Mephistopheles is the one who's helping him subdue nature. Mephistopheles is the one who helps him, helps him help the Kaiser win his war against the pretender to the throne. And so the, the last scene of act four is the, is like the Bishop or the priest coming into the Kaiser and being like, I know what you did last summer. I know you used those demons. I know you used a sorcerer to get your 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 worldly gains, and it's gonna cost you, buddy. It's gonna cost you. Like I want all this tide, you know. I want like all this money. I want all this property. That's the only way, way your soul is gonna be free because I know you <laughs> used that creep Faust and his like other creep Mephisto to to do your dirty work to win that war. And he's like, I also want that beachfront property. And the Kaiser's like, I'm sorry, like I gave it to Faust. It's his, and that's the that's the framework for Faust wow. trying to build this using Mephisto as power and the power of these like three like giants who are, are weird and help him win to do violence for him. Basically, they're like his three henchmen to uh, to push back the sea and make this happen. So that's like. You were curious about the kind of world he wants to build. It seemed like you were a little, you know, there was some of this seemed implausible to you. Yes. Well, I'm just, what kind of society is this? That this, um, is it the New Jerusalem? Um, are people characterized by their sort of giving and loving? Is it Acts 2? Is it the, you know, the new Christian community of where people are holding everything in common and sharing uh, with who has need? Or is it sort of, you described it briefly as as everyone working, right? And free and also working. I'm wondering about the role of labor in the society and if we have any clue as to how it's structured. Is it super hierarchical? Is it a kingdom? Yeah. Um, what are the politics of this new place? It's just world building in the in the Faust legend feels like something new, like a new creative element that Goethe is adding here. Yeah. Yeah, and it's striking that it's a world apart from the kind of corrupt world, the Holy Roman Empire, where like these Catholic prelates are like extorting all this power from the king and like sort of ma like making the emperor unable to like actually function like effectively. Like there's a jab at that sort of history going on here. It does not seem to me that it would be a non-hierarchical city. I, you know, everything I know about Goethe and the presentation of Faust as like sort of like Superman, like 
does not, you know, and his own desire to be monumentalized does not strike me as being a sort of a, a, a society free of hierarchy. Labor and discipline are important. And so the pushing back the waters and disciplining nature, okay. he compares the the sort of the crush of tidal waves and the sort of the the sort of swirling vortex of the ocean to rebellious humanity. He's also like it's not only is it just a, sim- a symbol for nature, it also reminds him just as he's watching it as he re- he's he's sort of reflecting on it. He's like, oh, this is like human society out of control, and it's really hard not to see Goethe's own reactions and having lived through the French Revolution as sort of like part of that too. So there's a danger in too much leveling, too much rapid social change. And on the other hand, this is kind of a utopian experiment, it seems. And he seems to be drawing on, like, the lore of the Netherlands and, like, sort of using dikes and dams and, like, these practical... It's, like, very Teutonic Northern European, like, thrift. You know, everyone's working hard. Everyone is disciplined. There's discipline. There's communal discipline. There's solidarity, though. It's not, it, there has to be a kind of communitarian ethos for the whole thing for it to work because people need to be looking out for each other. And so it is, it's like at once not like the guillotine crazy Jacobin like situation in France. It's not like, you know, he's writing at the end of his life after the defeat of Napoleon and the reassertion of conservatism across the empires of Europe, between the Tsar, between Austria, between the King of Prussia, between, you know, between the, 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 the Bourbon Restoration, and so on. So there's like a real reaction in Europe that is aligning crown and altar together that he is also seems to be like, oh, that's also not the best thing here, too. And so it still is vague. You I mean, like, Faust will talk about, like, like, noble work and freedom, but, like, freedom doesn't always, doesn't mean freedom can mean different things right uh there's, there's so yeah it's it's a, i think it's 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 not totally defined it seems to be in between those two things or at odds with those two things and crucially he dies before it happens we don't even know if it happens or not like that's the other he doesn't thing. make it he, he doesn't make it to the promised land as it were yeah right that's i think that's right like in terms of like who faust fantasizes himself as like Moses, there's definitely like a kind of Moses, like sort of political leader, spiritual leader who's legendary, but yeah, does not quite make it. And so, does he murder someone in this or no? Just wondering. Well, about vibes. one of the last parts of Act 5 before the metaphysical stuff really starts kicking in is he has, he asks Mephisto and the three powerful beings to help him get rid of this old couple who are occupying land that are getting in the way of the tower that he's going to build so he can survey his whole, you know, domain of ordered, you know, progress or whatever. And Amazing. Amazing. he's like, yeah, like take care of that problem. And they murder them and burn it down. And he's like, that's not what I wanted you to do. <laughs> like, I didn't it's want you to kill. I, I didn't want you to kill them, but they, they're, they're just like, well, they, and in the, in the play, it's really funny in the video, they're, they're like pirates. They go like Mephisto goes into pirate mode with these guys, and so they're like they, they're like these like cartoonish pirates, burning stuff down. So there is a murder. There, yeah, there there is a there is that kind of a problem for sure. Um, that's kind of Moses esque. So yeah, but anyway, this gets us to the the setup of like, you know, you might ask like, does why doesn't Mephisto win? Because at the very point of his death. 
Faust is like, you know, I'll, I'll sort of let me find the, the actual like. He is he rehearses he repeats the lines of the bet, and he's like, yeah. he's like, oh, I'm like coming to this vision. I can almost imagine a moment where there could be a free people working for prosperity, and like I my my legacy would be guaranteed. Like I could almost see it, and if I could see it. If I could see, if I could actually be in that moment that I'm not in, I would say, "Oh, stay a little while. You're so beautiful, right?" But it's all in the conjunctive. It's like subjective, like or sub- it's mm-hmm. it's you know it's 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 not it's not actually it's not actually there. He's like, but he's imagining it, and he's saying like, "Oh, if I could just see that, I could say yes, I want that. That's what I've that's what I've been looking for," and then he dies. And so it's ambiguous. You're like, is the fact that he even said that he could imagine being there sufficient for the bet to be concluded with Mephisto winning? Or is the fact that he's talking about it hypothetically, like that actually seems to insulate him too from the terms of the bet. And the play, I think the play plays with that. It's it's not totally clear. But it's also, what is clear is that Mephisto, as he like sort of kicks into traditional devil mode, does not get what he wants. Um, so yeah, I asked you to read this part of, of, of the play where Mephisto is like, finally, like now it's time to rock. I've been, this has been like my job for, this has been a long project and I'm going to get what's mine. And he goes, he like puts on like the little horns in the play. <laughs> so good. So and good then, when he puts them on. Yeah. And then like all these like really traditional looking demons come out. The gates of hell open up. The jaws of the gates of hell open up. And all these like scary demons come pouring out. And he's like, surround the body. Like the, the soul, <laughs> the soul is going to pop out. You got to catch it. <laughs> it's really funny. <laughs> it's like scary. And they're all so powerful, the right? They're like different kinds. They're, they're ridiculous too, right? Because there's the, you know... They have different kinds of bodies and he's sort of poking fun up at them, but they're, they're meant to have all this potential to be able to do this pretty easy task. This like snatch up one soul and he's got this small little army of demons ready to do it, but somehow they can't, um, through the inter- the most ridiculous interventions of, ang- of angels that are above them that you can imagine. I mean, rose petal, like flower petals. Yeah, What's so what, going on? What, what was your interpretation of what even happened? To prevent, because like Mephisto is frustrated, he does not get Faust's soul, and like what what did the angels do to stop them? So they're they're like a Greek chorus. They're like chanting things in unison above. So we have a little overlap uh, there again, um, and they are raining down um, little bits of of flowers right they're flower like petals rose petals yeah. <laughs> rose petals are coming down that's right they say roses um rose petals are coming down from the sky and it's like they have cooties like it's they're burning <laughs> like they symbolize you know divine love or something um yes i just love that uh of all the ways to defeat the devil you know military kinds of you know because there's of course, the the war between angels and demons that we can imagine a kind of conclusion that would be fitting. No, no, we do the opposite of that. And it's also not some, it, it doesn't feel Jesus-y either. It's we like a Warner something. Brothers cartoon where someone drinks a love yeah. potion, 
Like when the yes. skunk, you know, Pepe Le Pew, like sees like the cat with a white stripe painted on the back of it, and it's like. <laughs> I mean, it might also be another Mario Brothers level, right? You have to yeah. get the flower, the power flower that like yes, transforms yes, everything. Yes, um, yes. So we have these things, and and they have cooties, and they're burning, and oh my gosh, it's it's also um, the witch is melting in the Wizard of Oz. Yes. These are the kind of ridiculous, fantastical um, uh, conclusions that we get from this. And then just the figures of the angels are comical. They're really into poetry, you know. They're like chanting in unison. Um, about love, and they're raining down flower petals that are defeating these these powerful demons who just can't take it anymore. And Faust gets really frustrated, and uh, or, no, Mephisto gets really frustrated and uh, increasingly. But then something changes in his attitude, right, Klaus? What happens? They were he's really mad at them. He's like cursing them. Yeah. And then something changes. What does he notice about the angels? The scales fall from his eyes, and he realizes they're hot, and he he, he wants to get with them. <laughs> But isn't that perfect for this play that is ultimately about the ambiguity of desire to have like to, to let us play around with angelic desire for a moment and think about, oh, the de like defeating this devil. Well, it can't be some sort of great, you know, self-sacrificing love. He's not really maybe capable of that at this moment, but he's capable of a kind of lust. So we'll work with that as a way to not convert him, but defeat him. And it's it's portrayed, at least in the the video, the movie production as as homosexual like homoerotic lust you know it's 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 and that's that to me that's very striking because it's in contrast to faust salvation which is which is very hetero in many ways yes but, but yeah like the the relationship between mephisto and the angels is is like very he's like you know it's, it's homoerotic and i'm guessing it's i mean in my translation it was too right um it's like oh the tall you're tall and handsome. Yeah, um, so exactly. Yeah, I wasn't looking yeah. at the German, but like it looks pretty clearly like he's falling for some hot youths. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's nothing. He talks to, about their know, youth. As there's well. nothing. To, there's like, nothing to suggest it. For, like Goethe uses like the sort of traditional like angel types. It's not like you know some like Hallmark card with like a, a lady with long hair and a white robe. You know, they're yeah, they're like militant youths of heaven or whatever. And so yeah. So that's that's key. I thought this was interesting too. I thought Mephisto also like goes into like patristic, uh, like Christus Victor mode. Like he he's like he's like I have my deal. Like it's like the devil having rights over humanity. Like I had a deal and like or a bet in this case. And like this is my these are my earnings. Like this is my right to have this soul. And then he's like tricked out of it. You know, at least that's one way to look at it. That like he's sort of bamboozled, like sort of just like thrown off the scent by like by hoardiness, and it speaks to his own limitations. That like he is like, oh, what you want is like your appetites fulfilled. You want recognition and sex and and all these things, and that's what sort of stops him from being able to actually. It's one way of reading anyway. It stops him from being able to lay claim to the soul. Another way to make sense of it is to say, like, well, like we, we mentioned before, that that Faust never actually lost the bet. Like, that he, you know, it's sort of a tease at the end, and it just coincides with his death, but the heat, that Mephisto actually had no claim to his soul because, uh, as we were saying, that, that that's sort of like the utopian Netherlands 2, part 2, like, isn't actually created in, in, in front of his eyes. Like, he's seeing it about to be, but, like... He, he, you know, it's all very much in the subjunctive. And uh, it, so, yeah, to, so wait, he, he either gets tricked by the hot boys or 
he never actually won the bet and he was mistaken about that. It's, it's a little ambiguous. I think it's both. And that's because it's ultimately both about, because it's all comes down to the nature of desire that he never understood. Um, so Mm -hmm. this is that desire doesn't end. Um, and so the projection in that subjective sort of grammar of what might could should happen um, in the future, that vision, I could almost taste it, right? It's, it's yes, right, yes, it's yeah. almost there. That is what is, I think he's pointing to is this kind of universally human um, thing. And insofar as Mephistopheles can participate in the human because he's not human, he gets that bit of lustiness. And so I think those things go together. Um, I can't, of course, uh, pass up this opportunity to point to um, what we've discussed before in terms of Christian desire as never ending, as epictosis. This isn't, I mean, it's not so much that he is talking specifically about the face of God that he's looking for here, as you might see in Gregor Nyssa's Life of Moses or in other Christian texts. Which is the the classic source for this epictosis idea that like, it, like desire is eternal and never end, and like it's sort of like that's like that's like the, the path to the divine is like through this like sort of desire that's always expanding and changing and going higher or something. Yeah, so we have what I would call maybe an echo of that and a broadening of that idea as he looks in his much more human way, um, less idealized way. We have Faust looking for this sort of eternal city and getting a taste of after having rejected all these things that he thought he was looking for, you know, um, embodied passionate love of women and, you know, this, that, and the other, that this devil has helped him try and see. Ultimately, he's actually purifying his desire for something that's bigger than himself. That's a really interesting, yeah, that's really interesting to say because in some ways, like, he doesn't even reject them. They just don't work. Like, they just fail. Like, like the thing's (laughs) just like, you know, like, you know, Gretchen, like, gets pregnant and kind of loses her mind and is going to be executed for as a in for her infanticide like Helen of Troy just like loses her so- again a death of a child like loses again there's like so many parallels there's so like there's so much structural like you know reinforcement going on with the themes like his relationship with Helen ends because she's just their son dies and she's like I just I need to be with his shade in the underworld and that's where I'm going and so Faust is always like pushing for these things coming to the point of despair as they totally crack up on the, like the ship cracks up on the rocks and then he's whisked away. You know, he's like, Oh, there's always a get out of jail free card. And what's really striking is with the end of the Helen sequence, these clouds whisk him away. He like, he's like, when he gets to the top of the mountain at the beginning of act four, these clouds have like dropped him off there. And like, he sees like one set of clouds receding in the distance, this sort of like cumulus clouds and he's like, oh, like I see the, I see the, I see the ideal figure of Helen like there, but it's like fading. But the clouds that like stay and linger with him, are like aligned, like sort of tap into his first love. And so it's actually like the return of Gretchen. <laughs> um, oh wow! But so like yeah, just to say like he doesn't really, he doesn't really like reject them. They just there's they just fail. Like and and I think it's also part of the desire. It's like not like the end of that desire. It's just like that desire reaches a point and it gets redirected. Oh wow, this sounds amazing. I should read more of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the scenes I read were really great, but uh, rethinking 
the centrality of, of human desire and how it's a mark of the human being. And um, oh, it's that's really profound. I think that's really important. I know. I find like a lot of this, I mean, like I watch it and there's like all this like flowery shit and you're like, oh my God, what's going on? You know, but like, I did find it like very moving at the end. And like, there are great scenes, funny scenes, scenes that like speak to our interests. There's a lot of scenes where you're like, what is this? Like allegory, like, okay, you know, all right. A lot of Greek, a lot of Greek references here that my kids are actually in a better position to understand than I do because they listen to the National Geographic podcast about Greek mythology for kids constantly and basically know all Greek mythology forward and backward now in a way that is kind of amazing wow. to me. Um, but, but like, there's all that and I'm just like, okay, but yeah, you're right. I mean, like you get to the end of it and you're like, wow, like, man, like that's a vision <laughs> there, 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 there were some stakes here for this whole thing. And yeah, um, it's, it's totally worth it. So it, this seems like a really great ending, but it's kind of not the ending, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So why do you, why, what's the logic behind why Faust is saved in this version? Would you say? Well, it, it really relates to the epictosis thing we, we sort of touched on the one of the angels is like you know the person who's always striving who's always working like that's the person we can save like that's the like if you're always like trying to do better try you, you're sort of you're like guided by your desires for the good and for happiness like you're going to get dirty along the way but we can we can do something about that reformata semper reformanda yeah perhaps? exactly yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, okay, but on a personal level. Exactly, right. So that so that makes it seem very voluntaristic. That like, oh, it's Faust, you know, he had that dog in him. You know, like he pulled himself up by the bootstraps. But the play doesn't want it just like that. Then there's other suggestions that he has a powerful benefactress in heaven who's helping him. And you're like, oh, like this is some Beatrice Dante stuff. And it it's probably where he got the idea. Let's be serious. And... <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, from one great poet to another here, like uh, that's that's what we're seeing here. And so we get to the final stages and the transfiguration of Faust. It's even kind of hard to recognize who he is in the film. But all of the heavenly beings there, we get we sort of rise up through like hierarchies of angels and you get to the top and the, the, the sort of the height of the whole thing are these female uh, penitents. You know, like the Samaritan woman from the Gospel of John, the woman who anoints Christ's feet from Luke 7, Mary of Egypt from the Acts of the Apostles. They're like at like the, the sort of the nexus of heavenly power. And Gretchen is one, is like, a you know, someone sort of seeking forgiveness with them. But she is seen as aligned with this kind of feminine divinity that is like the source of power and redemption. Like, that's like the, the sort of the, the sort of the matrix of the entire economy of redemption in this whole thing. And so on the one hand, it's like Faust's desire for that feminine ideal. A and key, Helen is not up there. <laughs> so that's, <laughs> that is like an interesting, like it's, of course, this isn't Christian orthodoxy by any stretch of the imagination. God, the father ain't there. There's no Jesus in this whole play. Right. Uh, <laughs> unless we want to say Faust is Jesus, but like, I'm not quite ready to go there. But um, he does say that he does have the God's image in him a lot in the first first Faust. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, so does everyone, as you know. But so does everyone, right? Yeah. So does everyone. <laughs> uh, but uh, to sort of go, but it, to have it not be 
Helen is also striking. It's part of that critique of like the, you know, the Frau Hellenism and the sort of the Hellomania of Germany and stuff. But like we do have traditional sort of Christian symbols at the top and figures. He's got Bible citations next to these women. Like he's, you know, he's very deliberate. He's like, no, it's that woman from the New Testament. It's that one from the New Testament. It's that one from the New Testament. And it's Gretchen who Faust fucked over in Faust 1. She's there too. And it's the, the explanation given, the chorus says it. The mystical chorus says that the, it's, it's the eternal feminine. Das ewige Weibige. That draws us all forward and upward. Yeah. Das ewige Weibige zieht uns hinan. It's, what, it's the eternal feminine that's pulling us up by our... It's, we're not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. The, the eternal feminine is pulling us up. It's pulling us by desire, but it's also pulling us by grace. So it excites the desire. It is like... like it's a bizarre... Thomistic thing going on where like you have to, you you know the, the the soul wants the soul wants the highest good and desires the highest good but you need grace too and so it redoes that through this kind of divine feminine as opposed to the kind of patriarchal theology I don't know I was wondering what you thought about the, the whole ending I mean you know yeah this part curiouser and curiouser here um, I think when you create a cosmology and you stick penitent women at the top, on the one hand, at least it's something different that you're kind of breaking up our uh, orthodox sensibilities and that's always good. Uh, I worry about associating feminine spirituality too uh, tightly with penitence because of course it always presumes it's, uh, feminine sinfulness as a starting point for what for why their penitence matters so much and the sort of um, supplication and obedience as a prototypically feminine posture which I find to yeah not necessarily be a great vibe to, when you're essentializing femininity into the eternal feminine already um, so I'm I'm not uh, in love I suppose mm -hmm. um, to speak of what I'm supposed to be in love with the eternal feminine. I'm not, uh, that's, that's make the a other crack thing about is, my sexuality here. Well, but, that, but that seems but. like the sexuality is important. And, and like, yeah. I don't think Goethe was necessarily the straightest arrow in the quiver either. <laughs> but like, he did have intense, you know, heterosexual relationships. Uh, but yeah, like, especially in contrast to the, Mephistopheles, the sort of homo eros of the Mephistopheles angel encounter. And then to have, you know, which is like then, like, it doesn't work. It's not as if Mephisto then joins the heavenly choir. He's almost, right. he, he's almost on the point of it, it seems like. But then he sort of is like, fuck those guys, man. They robbed me of my prize, you know. He doesn't, it's not as if we have like an or, a sort of quasi-originist universal story of Satan's redemption here. It's like kind of like, oh, they've tricked me. It's like kind of more of a... The tricking of the devil, the ransom theory. It's like the ransom theory devil who gets stumped at the end. Yeah. And then the people who are saved are like saved through, you know, penitence and like women sort of like trying to get over like the, the first sin and the fall. And or men who are just like, you know, madly in love with those women or the ideals that they, they represent and are drawn by that, you know, towards them. And I guess you could see Gretchen as like a real life human being at versus Helena Troy as like also linked to Faust's utopian political project and social project, because like he's trying to help real people 
she's a real person. It's a little tenuous. I don't know. Uh, but it does the, that act does start off with like links to going back to Gretchen. And then we find out that it's Gretchen, Gretchen making intercessions with the, the Mater Gloriosa in heaven that is like part of the salvific economy here. So I think you're right that like centering, if we center these penitent women, that we're also centering their sinfulness. At the same time, they're not asking for forgiveness from any man. There's no male divine figure there at all. Right, right. <laughs> it's like, um, and that's where, that's where I think it is still like, it's of course essentializing, but it's, there's, there's, there's some charge to it too. And by the time Faust is writing, it's not doctrine yet, but if Mary Queen of Heaven is at the center, that actually upsets um, the notion that sinfulness underlies all penitence, right? Um, and and this fe eternal feminine is not exclusively about, can't exclusively be about that, um, given that at this point, people would have generally understood Mary to be um, Without sin. sinless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And yeah, I don't know. It's, 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 it's a, it's one of those things. It's like, it's like one of those phrases that if you like sort of read a Wikipedia article about Gerda, you're like, oh, das ewige Weibliger, like that. Man, Gerda was on, like, Gerda was like plotinizing some courtly, courtly love shit or something, you know, like, but yeah, it's, <laughs> and for me, it's just like having like flip back through it and you're like, oh, but there is like a traditional God figure at the beginning of the play. And at the end of the play, it's just, sacred women like heavenly women like at the end you know at the end of time at the in, in the at the sort of transition to the infinite well yeah and i think we've pointed already to if you have i wonder if he's already nervous about the implications of a an erotics a, 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 theolo a theology that is at its heart about human desire uh what that would look like if you had jesus christ at the end right number one is it is it too obvious? You know, is it boring in a certain way to do that? But two, it helps us link back with, as you've already pointed out, with Gretchen, with a human uh, woman who, unfortunately to me, um, serves as a merely as an arrow pointing and directing one's desire to uh, something beyond her. Like, you know, yeah. I, yeah. it's, I it's right. a little bit tiresome, but it, is, it totally um, is. It totally is. It totally is. Yeah, I agree. No, Gretchen, like, but Gretchen, at least it's yeah. different. It's, di you know, it's, it's definitely different. It's, <laughs> it's different. definitely different. It's interesting. It's it's different and interesting. It's, it has its own serious problems, but it's. I I think my I'm trying to draw back on some like papers written long ago, and I'm pretty sure I'm like spitballing a little bit or sort of reaching far back into my memory banks, which is always dangerous. Orthodox Christology and Christianity, Goethe did not have much of an appetite for that. And I think the idea of the incarnation and it's sort of Orthodox, like really was just strongly put off by it sort of does. And I feel like, like this is like the thing you, that Protestant German intellectuals say at for a certain point where they're like, I really love the Hebrew Bible and the new Testament was repugnant to me. And I, I think you get some of that here. It's funny that he's then going to it you know, at the end, but he's, it's, it's, it's very subversive. Uh, and, you know, whether it's like how to think about the relationship to a kind of like Gaia based spirituality or like a sort of like eco theology that sort of like genders the earth as, as mother, as female, 
you could see like, oh, is that what he's doing? But then, of course, like so much of what Faust does is discipline and control nature, like especially in the huge utopian settlements. You're like, that doesn't quite work. You know, it, it's yeah, I, I don't know. Um, we're all like just, you know, we're just left stunned by the end of, of, of Faust, too. And it's just, you know. I have an Adorno essay where he's like, the meaning of the end of Faust 2 that I'm probably going to read. And maybe Adorno, I'm sure, will illuminate the entire thing in ways that will make it all sense to me. But I, I'm actually being a little bit sarcastic about that. But yeah. Um, Klaus, but yeah. I think we need to assign ChatGBT uh, to write us, an <laughs> write us an essay comparing the uh, comparing Dante and uh, desire for the eternal feminine uh, to Goethe's... Um, Faust 2 and and see what it comes up with. I think that would be an entertaining read. The next episode will be just me reading that paper off and perfect. We're just generating content, baby. It's another one out into the universe winning. Exactly. Um, well, I think with that, we will we'll wrap it up here. Thank you so much Travis for coming on and helping me helping me process the Thanks for doing the heavy lifting, Klaus. I really appreciate it. Yeah. And yeah. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.